Hello and welcome to episode six of Omega Mail. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie. Today's episode features some live music performed by my four-year-old son on the toy piano. My guest today is Tyson Adams, a trauma-informed men's coach who utilizes internal family systems therapy to help men outgrow unwanted sexual behavior such as pornography addiction, objectification, and infidelity. Tyson resides in San Diego, California, and if he's not working, you can catch him on a rock wall somewhere or attempting to ride a wave. Okay, Tyson Adams, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thank you for taking the time and making the time to be on my podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, I'm very excited. We've had some interesting conversations leading up to this, so it'll be interesting to see how this all crystallizes. Uh, I want to make a little disclaimer for listeners. Tyson's work is very progressive and very edgy. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to be using some language you don't normally hear on podcasts, like penis, masturbation, Porn, I guess porn's not that racy word, but we will be digging into porn in a rather uh, thorough way, probably, and whatnot. So uh, if you are squeamish about stuff like that, well, this would be a great opportunity to get comfortable with things that people are generally not uh, comfortable talking about. So don't tune out, just uh, buckle down and see how it goes. One of the things I really appreciate about Tyson's work, or Tyson, your work, as I'm talking to you, how you're working with men is is very unique and very different from a lot of the other men's work I'd encountered. The way you approach and the way you speak and the way you post and also the content of your work. And there is a real focus here on what you might call the sort of uh, global epidemic of men being addicted to porn and how that informs their relationships to themselves and to other people. And so I thought maybe it would be interesting to just dive into the deep end by quoting uh, one of my favorite of your quotes, and just maybe you can explain what you mean by this, if that's cool. You have this statement that is, how a man treats his penis is how he treats everyone and everything in the world. I loved seeing that on Facebook. So can you just unpack that a little bit as by way of introduction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that to me is not a capital T truth about the past. It's more about a mythopoetic map forward for men. So what I mean by that is that most men, when they're sad or sick or bored or angry or feeling anything that they don't want to feel, what they often do is they go to using their penis as a way to feel better. And by doing so in that objectification of their own body, what ends up happening, psychologically speaking, is that this invisible part, this shadow aspect gets projected outwardly onto the world. And so if they're objectifying their own body and they don't realize this and using it to feel better, that often shows up in the way that they treat uh, their partners, uh, the natural world, even the way in which they do business. So I think it's an important thing for us to consider that if we're bullying our penis regularly and we're uh, effectively consuming our own life force and not really giving our body the time to regenerate and be kind to it, that that has repercussions in the way that we live our lives. So just reflecting back, is it safe to say that you're kind of saying, if I treat my penis as an it that's there for me to use to my own ends, I'm more likely to treat the world and other people as its rather than an interconnected 
entity of consciousness, I'm more likely to other the rest of the world and kind of use and abuse it to make myself feel better or more comfortable. Absolutely. And there's a psychological aspect to it. And there's also just a, a chemical aspect, dopamine. We're constantly chasing the dopamine hits. So then we're constantly chasing the dopamine hits in the way in which we relate to the world outside of us too. Whether it's lattes or likes, right? We're constantly mm -hmm. trying to... Well, that's certainly worth delving into a bit. But before we do that, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about your own personal story. Because every man who is in any way using porn had to start somewhere, right? And so we all have kind of an origin story for our relationship to pornographic material. Can you share a little bit more about how that was for you and how that informed this work that you're doing now, your own journey with that? Yeah. So I was exposed uh, to porn at nine. I found a Playboy magazine in a field um, it seems like when I talk to men, they often have the discovery of porn. It's either their father's or somewhere buried in the ground or something. And that was my story too. And I still recall it very clearly. It was a Vanna White playboy. My mother loved Wheel of Fortune. So I was drawn to that particular magazine. And I remember opening it and that flood of motion and flood of, you know, just chemical release through my system. And then the need to hide and you know, all of the shame that went with that and the fear of, oh, is somebody watching? Um, and then shortly thereafter, we moved and uh, I I lived in Ephrata, which is a very small town in Washington state. And what ended up happening is, is that our town got fiber wire put in. And so we went from no internet to high-speed internet. So we didn't have that whole AOL dial-up process. We just went straight to streaming internet and which which was wild. And there was a program back then called Kaza. Kaza was like Napster, um, but you could download videos. And what year yeah. are we talking about? Just for context. Uh, this would have been 95. Okay. 95, okay. 96. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and with Kaza, you couldn't see the thumbnail of what you were actually downloading back then. They would just have the title. And so I would download these videos. They would come in and people out there in the web that were uploading these were putting all kinds of really unbelievably messed up shit, basically. I mean, they were effectively putting titles and then they were throwing in porn that was really just kind of make your skin crawl kind of thing. And so, so it's, like a, it's like a box of chocolates where you don't know what you get, but the chocolate might have, uh, you know, uh, animal porn in it. Oh, yeah. It right. Did. It's like you don't, it know, you know, it's like, wow, I can see how that would be really volatile for mm -hmm. a young person, especially. Oh, yeah. Know, my God. It did. It did. It had animal porn. There was all kinds of just dehumanizing things. And so, you know, coming from a trauma informed lens after I went through my trauma training and what I realized is the way that I see trauma now is it's not in the event itself, but it's the it's the leftover energy in your system when something happens too much, too fast or too soon. And so as I reflected upon what transpired with me at 11 is that was absolutely trauma for me, which was that there was all this anxious energy trapped in my body as I sat there in a free state watching the videos from start to finish and then close it out. And then the next one would come and then I would just do this. And I did it for years. My parents, they, they found it, they found the cookies and they asked me about it. Of course I denied it and continued to do it, but just in a more safe way that they wouldn't catch me. But ultimately what that propelled me into was a 
20-year porn binge where I was basically watching pornography for you know two decades. And it affected every single one of my intimate relationships because I had watched pornography before I'd ever even had my first sexual experiences. And so what I was learning was being projected unconsciously onto my partners in the ways in which I was expecting them to behave. So, wow, yeah, it was intense. So one of the things that's striking in terms of our timelines and, and age differences, my first exposure to porn was also a Playboy magazine, but for me, it was probably, you know, the 70s or something. And so... I had, I would say, a dissimilar unfolding because of what was available at the time. So I wasn't exposed to any video type material for the longest time. You know, when I was a senior in high school, someone had one of those classic porn films like Debbie Does Dallas or something, and they were playing it on the wall and everyone at the party was sort of half watching it in an embarrassed way. So from like age 10 or 11 or younger, when I saw my first Playboy, it was pretty much just penthouses and, you know, if you were lucky, you got a hustler. <laughs> Um, which are, you know, those have a really strong negative impact too, but it's nothing like this visceral impact of just having video content that you had to deal with because you were, you know, a little bit younger, the technology evolved so much. And then I also think going to the future, what young people are going to have to deal with when they're dealing with uh, even more enhanced stuff like VR. So that would be interesting to go into. But before we go into that, I wanted to not pass over this moment that you mentioned when your parents talked to you about this. How did that go down? I'm trying to remember the exact details. I think my mom brought it up to me. She said something to the effect of the computer wasn't running well. And so we had Joe come over and look at it. And uh, he saw some things in the cookies in the history uh, that look like pornography. Are you watching pornography? And I just said, no, and just like walked away. And I think what my behavior, the way that it changed my behavior is instead of watching it and continue doing it on the computer, I went and deleted it all because I had re I had relabeled all the videos into different categories like Blink 182 videos and all these other ways of concealing my the the actual porn. Um, and then I started to take it into going back to magazines and you know taking those and. Uh, being able to have those hidden in different places and outside and that sort of thing. Cause I just didn't want to uh, go back there. And then shortly thereafter I started dating. So I, I stopped doing it as much, but I still remember the imprint on even that first pornography magazine that I got, like, for example, the title, it's kind of aggressive, but I'll just share it, which is, mm -hmm. I still remember this sleaze sluts suck jizz was literally the title <laughs> of this magazine. Those, some of those titles are just, it's just crazy. So that was the actual, magazine yeah, yeah. Oh, i i can see the cover i can remember the images and it's imprinted in my in my memory and those words have had, had a major effect on my way of relating sexually and what i wanted what i expected uh those projections were just constantly been being bombarded uh onto my partners through that whole journey and and what's really interesting, I'll, I'll share this, is that when I went off to college, I joined a fraternity and I was at the University of Washington and I joined this. I had no idea what a fraternity was. It just, I, I really was totally out of it. I didn't know what I was getting myself into basically. But when I joined, we had a, uh, even a porn chairman, a person who was responsible for indexing the hundreds and hundreds of videos that were inside of 
wow. our library from wow. genre to even porn star. And it was this running joke every time we would have a house meeting. Hey guys, get off the internet at 10 o'clock. You guys, every, we can't get on the internet. Because <laughs> people are trying to do their homework, but that's it was bogged funny. down. The whole server was bogged down. And so that's that's where I grew up in that sort of beltway of that misogyny and just porn is just this normalization and everybody just was doing it. And it was it was just not a big deal. Yeah, that's that's interesting because that really points to what I would call a really rapid evolution in our cultural relationship to porn. So I was born at an interesting time because when I was in, let's say, even when I was like eight, like you said, like a couple of boys would have a magazine and everyone would sort of huddle in some weird, you know, dark corner somewhere like, ha, 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 and they're all laughing more than anything because when you're prepubescent, you don't even know how to process. But there was, you know, through high school, I would say for me, and even most of college, most men I was friends with, and I was friends with a you know pretty broad array of like, you know, jocks to artsy types to nerdy intellectuals, you know, and everything in between, people generally did not talk about their masturbatory lives and they didn't talk about porn. And it was like sort of your edgiest friends that would be like, hey, you know, do you want to, I got this, you know, you'd get a magazine. There was like, you'd have a couple of almost allies where you'd broach the topic. And and now what you're talking about a few years down the road, there's already this like, it's all out in the open. Mm-hmm. And I think of, uh, you know, kids now, and I think this is maybe one of the good slash bad things about pornography, because it's not good for anyone for sexuality in any way to be attached to secrecy and shame, right? And sneaking around. I mean, I literally had to, if in, even in college, if I wanted to get, you know, a dirty magazine, I'd have to drive somewhere to some like roadside weird gas station or something, you know, that had a couple of dirty magazines. And it was like this shameful affair, you know, or go to some porn shop, God forbid, Mm -hmm. in town where there was shady characters and it was all kind of gross. Now, any kid, not to mention any bored housewife or husband can sit there and just find anything they want on the internet. And so culturally, there's like less shame around it. But It seems to me that the shadow side of that, this normalization, has resulted in an increase in trauma and damage because it's kind of like no big deal, right? Porn is no big deal to anybody, culturally, increasingly no big deal. And so the consumption of porn in an unlimited way has increased. Yeah. When you first started talking about this, it went to me seeing these boys. And I I lived in Laos in Southeast Asia, and I heard these boys chatting uh, in Laos, but they were speaking in kind of a, you know, we got to be secret about this thing. And they just kind of vanished around the cafe. I, I had a coffee roaster in a cafe and I went upstairs and I peeked out the windows and they were right down below and they had a blanket over them. And I could see through the top that they were watching pornography. They were stealing the Wi-Fi. So here we are, where the trajectory is from, for me with Vanna White Playboys to college normalization of porn to now here I'm in living in the jungle in a remote part of the world where they're literally uh, one generation ago had no electricity. And now here the teenage boys are watching high speed, you know, Pornhub and how that impacts and affects us on a global level. So that's what popped up first when you were sharing um, just to to understand that extrapolation of where we're headed globally 
on a cultural level with the normalization of it. Um, and then as far as the secrecy, silence and shame goes, I would say that yes, there's a cultural acceptance that this is what's happening, but I would say that there still is a tremendous amount of shame that people are carrying in relationship to what they're doing. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because for thousands of years, I look at this from a, from a big picture, you know, level, which is for thousands of years, masturbation was effectively sinful. I mean, you could effectively end up in a fiery damnation if you did this thing. And so they would even, even in the Victorian era, they would put contraptions on little boys' penises to keep them from masturbating. And like basically the effective, uh, the equivalent of a garter belt for boys. And so right, a chastity here we belt are. For, for men. What was that? Like a chastity belt for men. Yeah. 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 yeah chastity belt. That's what it is. Not a garter belt. Um, and so uh, here we are with the advent of the internet and just pop. And so what I see is this destructive entitlement, which is basically, don't you take away my porn. Don't you t dare take away my masturbation. And so my whole thought on that is just that we have now uh, eroded a lot of that dogmatic shame. So we've kind of, we're swimming through it. But in that process, we were not wired uh, to be able to understand the repercussions of these dopamine machines, these dopamine lottery machines called cell phones and technology, we weren't wired for it. And so we don't actually understand how to put guardrails on our, you know, uh, guardrails for ourselves to keep us from continuing going down that rabbit hole. And so what happens is we ride these dopamine waves in the pursuit of it. But then once we ejaculate, we actually go below baseline. And so we feel shitty now. And so then what ends up happening is, is that then we need something even a little bit more crazy or a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more weird or a little more racy in order to get to that place. And so then we keep coming back and that novelty keeps us coming back for more and more. And that becomes this addictive process that we're in collectively. So moving now from your own story into your work, mm -hmm. You referred to the impact that the porn consumption and addiction had on your relationships. How did that form the the sexuality or the intimacy in the relationship? And what do you see in other men that you work with as the impact on their relationships? What is the damage? I could look at this from three different buckets. I could look look at it from sexuality, how it impacts sexual connection. I can look at it from how it impacts emotional, emotional uh, regulation within myself. And then also physicality, um, how it depletes my life force. So I can kind of go in three different buckets here. Um, but as far as the relationship piece, I will honestly say that pornography creates a pornographic mindset in the sense that instead of seeing the individual or the soul before you, you see them in, in this objectifying way, which is to say they're just this object of my pleasure. And that's all that it is. And so what ends up happening is, is as we outsource our own pleasure to porn or to this fantasy world, we don't see that we're also outsourcing the other responsibilities, for example, self-care and or even our own healing journey. We also outsource that to others. So there's a, an impact in that we can actually truly have interdependent relationship because we're constantly using ourselves and then using another. And so it creates a lot of codependent loops whereby which it alchemizes into these trauma bonds that cause a lot of grief and a lot of difficulty between people because we're projecting so much onto them 
which is not true. It's the fantasies that have been created from the porn. And because of that, we go into this performance anxiety. We think that we need to play a part or have power over or power under dynamics or BDSM or whips or chains or all this shit. And frankly, it's not relational. It's not connected heart, heart, like, Hey, who are you? Let's be in this journey together and let's, let's jive. Right. It's not, it's not intrinsic. The partner becomes an other or a thing that's there for me to do things to and to get things from. Whereas if that were stripped away, we have a human being that we are intertwined and interconnected with, that we communicate with. What you seem to be saying by relational is there's a real intermingling that happens, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. And we're not available for that. Even if you're just looking at a flat 2D image, if it's there to titillate you or cater to the sort of male gaze, or you could even say the, the, the masturbatory gaze, all of this imagery and programming is going in and it's hard to not project that onto a person if all of your pleasure experience in your own masturbation life is kind of reinforcing that. So what does your work look like? How did you extrapolate from identifying within yourself and then within other men this kind of damage that's been done and this programming? What does the deprogramming look like and how does that work unfold for you? Some men want to go into this as this is the industry that I want to be a part of. And this is the way that I'm going to build a business from. That was not what happened to me. I was living in Asia with a coffee roaster in a cafe. I used a spermicidal lubricant a condom and it set off a disorder that was chronic in my family system. It's called interstitial bladder cystitis. So I had pins and needles through my urethra, my bladder blew out and I was in excruciating pain and it was unbelievably scary. And I was in doctors in India, Bangkok, America, Mexico, doing all kinds of, they thought I had STDs. They thought I had bladder stones, kidney stones. They thought I had all these issues, but really it was none of those things. So in that process of not being able to masturbate because it was so painful, I was forced to not. And so I took 30 days off. And in that process of taking 30 days off, I also said, okay, well, I'm not going to watch pornography then either. What's the point of watching it? And so in that forced experimentation on my own body that I had to do because I was in so much pain and I was in so much fear, I came out the other side with an awareness that I perceived that the only way that I could get aroused and ejaculate was through the prefrontal cortex, which was either I needed to have somebody there, like a partner, or I needed to be fantasizing about something, which would be either a past partner or some future thing that I wanted to have happen, or I would uh, be looking at pornography. And so when I finally or, came Or if of, I can interject, or a memory of pornography, right? That happens too. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally rewatching it. And so when I came out of that experience, I, I was in Laos and I was um, outside on my deck and I it had been about a month and I was like, okay, I'm feeling maybe it, I can do this without it being painful. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't want to think about pornography. Is it even possible to masturbate without thinking about something? <laughs> and so I just turned and looked and the moon was there and it just locked me in. And I just started staring at the moon and just moving into this space where I was connecting with my own body. And I had an orgasmic experience, which became what I now realize is the real true first orgasm of my life. Moving from this sort of ejaculatory sneeze 
ah, which is basically the way I masturbated my whole life into a full body expression where the the impact of that experience and also with the duration of not masturbating for 30 days was an explosion through my system, which immediately had me see a new way. And I was like, okay, there's something to this, which is we as men can learn how to be with our pleasure without needing to objectify something in our mind or objectify another in order to learn about ourselves and to come into a greater wholeness. To be clear, you were you were touching yourself, right? This was like, what? you just weren't engaging in like sexual specific imagery in your mind. It was like you were experiencing your body kind mm -hmm. of locked into the bigger beauty of the universe through the moon. And so it wasn't like it wasn't, it wasn't a masturbatory experience. It just wasn't the kind of masturbation that's focused on having a imaginary or an internal video screen of some sort. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I moved back from Asia, I just dove into men's work, you know, psychotherapy for five and a half years, um, psychedelics um, and biohacking. And really I had to because my bladder was all shut down and they gave me too many antibiotics and antifungals. So it tanked my testosterone levels. I went into a depression whereby which I actually uh, had some suicidal thoughts. It was pretty dark and I had to rebuild my nervous system from scratch. So I understood very, very clearly what premature ejaculation issues feel like because there was so much sensitivity down there that anytime I had sex, I just would, I would only last a minute. Um, and then I had erectile dysfunction because my T levels were so low and I had to move through moving out of that pornographic way of relating. And so all of those things catalyzed into a body of work where I began to have a deep empathy for men and what they're going through because every man has a something that, that they struggle with within sexuality. And I went through a lot of those different things myself, which then created, you know, this, this purpose and this passion that I live from today. When I hear your story, I have this feeling that I get sometimes with certain people who really seem to have a calling where I see such a clear connection between the course of their life karmically and the work they do and the value. You know, like when you talk about this sort of early traumatic exposure to this really intense porn and the stuff in college and going through that phase to this medical obstruction that you had that made you not masturbate for 30 days. But I hear these things and from a mundane atheist point of view, someone would be like, oh, this is just stuff that happened to this guy. But being sort of a spiritually inclined person, I hear these turning points in your life. And to me, it really feels like these are the trials that you were meant to go through because each one of these things brought you to a new level of understanding and self-awareness. And these are things that you can share with the world now. Do you look at your own work and your own life that way? Or do you just sort of feel like you're making lemonade out of lemons? Yeah. So I'll answer it with a James Hillman quote. I love James Hillman, protege of Carl Jung. And he says that when you interpret the dream, you trade the dream for the interpretation. So I do my best to not interpret what's actually happening. But yes, there's absolutely a path that's been laid out before me. I come from a lot of sexual trauma on both sides of my family. And then for me to go through that porn uh, experience and come through it. And then now uh, I'm in a two-year celibacy journey and also a one year of sobriety. So I'm 
in a state right now where I kind of look at it as modern monkhood, where I'm living into these purposes and into these passions, but I'm also not bypassing. When shit gets hard, I lay down, <laughs> I grieve, I weep, I let that genetic material and that programming move through my system. And I really do see that when people are on their dharmic path, there's what they're good at, what they love to do. And then that core wound or that core trauma that they carry either in the epigenetic lineage and line of their family system or what actually did happen to them in this life. And so for me, it is absolutely that, that triangle. I love this work. I'm really good at it. And it absolutely is in uh, the deepest way, a calling from both what my parents and my grandparents have gone through for me to come out the other side and to work with men and women specifically around sexuality, sexual trauma, um, with people that have had really violent things happen to them. And it's a deep, deep, um, body of work. That's really intense in some, in, in a lot of situations, it, it can get really little hairy. So, yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting to see what people's bigger picture view about meaning and their own purposes in life. So thanks for sharing that. So I'm curious a little bit more about the work. It seems to me that renunciation of pornography is sort of 101 for you, but you've talked a bit about abstinence and you've talked about a different kind of masturbation and a different kind of orgasm. I think we're now in what you're calling No Nut November, where you have like a group of men who sort of agree to go on this journey of like, what's it like to not masturbate at all? What to you is the I don't want to call it an end goal, but what would be a healthy state? Does it involve any kind of masturbation for men and women? Does it involve a certain kind? Is it a moderation? Is it different for different people? What what mm-hmm. what to you is the ideal relationship to self-pleasuring? Yeah, I like Esther Prell. She says something to the effect of, you know, sex is not something that you do. It's the place that you go within yourself. And so what that brings up for me is, Um, another quote, which is a mentor of mine, Jamie wheel. And he says, it's never about the thing. It's always about your relationship with the thing. So when I think about porn and masturbation and I look at it through those two lenses, what I help men to understand is, is that we're going somewhere in our psyche when we go into these places. So where are you going? And so what I help men to bridge that gap is to understand that it's not about the porn or the masturbation. It's about your relationship to it. And so what I believe is the uh, the trailhead here is moving from masturbation to feel better into masturbation to better feel. And so when we can make that shift, then it doesn't matter whether you're masturbating once a day or once a month or once a year, but the way in which you're relating to it begins to shift. And then you can kind of figure out what your, what would be a good schedule for yourself. And so instead of being reactive with it, when you're feeling crappy, you become proactive and then you schedule it in and it's intentional and you go through that process in ways that are are mindful. So talk about that a little bit more. That's a really great catchy phrase, moving from feeling better to better feeling. But what does better feeling look like? Does that mean you're taking some pain and stress and transmuting it? Does it mean you're only masturbating when you're in a certain state of mind? Like what is the reality of the masturbate to better feel that gets into something that i help men to do which is to think about masturbation as a death practice which is if it were the last time you were ever going to masturbate and you knew you were going to die tomorrow how would you do it differently than the way that you're doing it today and so i asked that question because if i were to impose 
this is mindful masturbation and what you're doing is not mindful, that gets really culty and weird. So I don't want to impose too much of what it actually could look like or should look like to men. I want, I have men go discover that on their own. And so I encourage them to think about set and setting and sound and massage and voice and vocals and opening up the throat and treating uh, if you've ever sat in a medicine ceremony before, there's an intentionality. Behind I have. That. You don't just go sit down and just go, oh, I'm just going to drink this ayahuasca or I'm going to eat this mushroom or something. There's, a, there's a, a mindfulness, not always, but if you're doing it in a ceremonial way. And so when I think about masturbation and I think about sexuality, I think about it from that same lens, which is that we are a culture with very few true elders. We're a culture that is appropriated and stolen for almost every other culture around us, especially here, those that are living in America. And so what would it look like to be ceremonial with your body, with yourself to integrate that and to actually bring that? Um, and I have a whole practice that I've been developing for years, but to go into that doesn't necessarily feel mm, helpful right in this moment. Well, we've covered so much ground and there's a few other little ancillary by roads that we could go down. One thing that came up in a personal conversation we've had was your thoughts about circumcision and how it relates to the trauma that many men suffer. Now, this is an interesting topic for me because I was, being an American of a certain age, I was circumcised, not for any religious reasons, because most men in America, uh, when I was born, were circumcised. But I moved to Germany when I was nine years old and quickly discovered the first day in the showers at soccer practice that my penis looked different from everyone else's. And my first response was like, why do these guys all have weird penises? And it took me a while to figure out, oh, I actually had been mutilated at birth. And I've since then had pretty strong feelings over time that it was a disservice to me and something that happened without my consent. I mean, talk about the violation of consent, mutilating a baby's body. I mean, mm -hmm. I have forgiven my parents and the entire culture for this. But so that's just my personal feeling about it. It's something I can't really undo. But I have a son. We chose not to circumcise him. And that was a, a no brainer for my partner. She had uh, equally strong feelings about it. But tell me specifically for you, your thoughts about how circumcision connects to the other traumas that men experience sexually. I'll dive in. But I want to say that if you are a mother out there and you have circumcised your boy, I just want to call attention to the sensitivity of this particular topic, and especially in the sense that, that it wasn't your fault. And I say that because for thousands of years, this has been normalized and your birthing rights are often taken away by doctors in the medical system, including what happens to your boy. And often there's a, oh, well, the boy needs to look like dad. So we're going to make sure that we circumcise them so that they have connection. That's just a thing that I've heard before. So just want to call attention to that and not place any blame or any more responsibility on women who are out there that may have experienced or may have circumcised their boy. Um, I agree. And, and, if, and if I can just add to that, men too, right? Because yes. men are going to be listening to this. And often men are the ones, I know of several couples where the man was like, fell for that argument about, well, he should look like me. I mean, I think it's it's BS, but so let's, uh, I think it was gracious of you to make that yeah. disclaimer, but let's let's extend it to all parents. Absolutely. Great point. Great point. Um, so this is a big one. So there's this cause or this mythopoetic thing that I mentioned at the beginning that the way that a man treats his penis is the way that he treats everyone and everything in the world. So if we are going to extrapolate that backwards in time, 
then what I would say is, is that the way that a man's penis was treated before he had agency in a non-consensual way is on some level, the way that he treats it now, the way that he relates to it now. And then the way that he relates to it now is the way that he treats other people. So what I'm calling attention to is, is that if our penis, which it was, was objectified the moment we came into this world, it was cut, sliced, something was taken from us against our own will. Does that not have some psychological impact on now the way that we treat the world, which is I feel entitled to take whatever the hell I want from anyone that I want and or even from the natural world and or even the way that I do business. And so I don't know if there's a way to even study this, because what we're talking about is developmental trauma and we're talking about pre-ego, like the pre-egoic child within, you know, the little boy who's there. But I've noticed that I've been able to, inside of psychedelic journeys, I've been able to enter into the transpersonal pain around circumcision. And it's some of the most atrocious, violent, and horrifying experiences I've ever had, uh, learning how to move that energy through my system and feel the breadth and the depth of what the impact of circumcision has had on the planet and how that impacts the way that we treat other people. So that's where I you know, kind of stepping into an esoteric space and into the waters that could get a little murky. So I don't want to go too far into that, but it is just to say that these ideas that have come to me have come to me in altered states where what has been shown has not been uh, sort of even been able to be studied by psychology. These are pictures and images and things that have been kind of channeled through. And so I'm still in the process of unpacking them fully. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. One could point out that there are plenty of uncircumcised or intact men that have done all kinds of horrible, selfish, destructive Mm -hmm. acts from that same kind of uh, the world is mine to use and take as there have been among us uh, circumcised guys. But I, I understand the value of visions like that. I have to agree with you, much as I haven't really given as much esoteric thought to this as you have, but I know from personal experience, there's a kind of trauma involved. And yeah. whether it manifests in that specific way or not, I think is interesting and also worth pursuing. But who knows? You know, Who knows what, what that might do? Again, I don't want to traumatize parents who have done this because most of my friends have done this to their children and most of my American friends have suffered this. But you know, social change happens through talking about this stuff. Um, and it transcends religion for me. Um, I know, for example, you know, like in the Jewish tradition, it's that's part of uh, a religious practice, but there are plenty of uh, Jewish people that feel that circumcision as it is, is outmoded. And there's maybe ceremonial ways to do it that are not, don't involve the same kind of trauma. So I think there's a way forward for anyone who's interested in that. Um, I have a boy, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and so I'm, always thinking about what's the best way to parent him and raise him with my partner, of course. What are your thoughts about the healthiest way to educate, to mentor, to guide a boy about coming into his own sexuality and relationship to his body and masturbation to help protect them, which seems like impossible from the onslaught of pornographic material and God knows what it's gonna be like 12 years from now. What are some thoughts on how to navigate those waters? And maybe that'll lead us into something you alluded to earlier, which is about uh, mentoring and and elderhood. Mm -hmm. Great question. So I think the parenting begins at the moment that the child is 
in diapers and you're changing the diapers and the process of not shaming them for wanting to touch their own penis and the normalization of the ways in which they're exploring their bodies to not uh, objectify and or shame them uh, in a way that would create them to need to hide their behavior. So the way I look at these things is if we're living as a punitive parent, then we're constantly creating uh, punishment for when behavior is uh, inappropriate in our own mind, which is our own worldview. And I think that when it comes to sexuality, if we can develop a relationship with our child where they come to us as these curiosities and these uh, thoughts come through, then we can discuss them as a as not the birds and the bees one time talk, but you're discussing these conversations regularly and freely. And the way that I would parent would be to be that hub in the neighborhood where all of the boys and girls come to jam there so that I can get a better view of my child in relationship to all of the other children, but also provide a safe space for other children to be able to ask these questions in a way that they might not be getting that at home as well. So that I have a handle on who in the neighborhood and which of the boys and or girls do I feel like maybe have not had the guidance and to be able to uh, be be willing to have those conversations if if they're if they need to happen, both with those individual children, but also the parents of those individual children. So knowing your kids, friends, groups, and, and parents is critical as it relates to the boundaries that other parents will not have on their children's devices. And uh, ensuring that the child knows that, hey, if this thing happens, if somebody presents to you uh, pornography on a phone or a magazine that you don't have to receive that, that you can have your own boundary to say, no, I don't want to do that. So that's a really critical component, which is that we're not taught. We don't, we don't teach our children to stand up to those that are, you know, basically, you know, peer pressuring us into doing something that we don't want, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or pornography for that matter. Um, and then I think there's a there's a level of protection. I think that there does need to be some level of blockers on children's devices for some period of time. But I think that ultimately that's not something that needs to be that, that big of a deal. But at some point, they're going to need to learn how to manage that on their own. And what age that is, I think, is up to every individual parent. But I think that talking to children about that is like a critical thing in, under, in helping them to understand that you don't have to masturbate with these images, that you can actually have intimacy with yourself without these images. And this is how it works. And this is what it would feel like. And, uh, and ultimately this is your choice. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to make that on your own. Yeah. I think these are powerful ideas and the way you express them, I'm sure for people listening gives rise to some of the thoughts I'm having about them, which is that these are slippery slopes only because when you are on the forefront of sociological or cultural evolution, as I think you are and some of these thoughts are, there's always going to be a certain level of tension with those who are trailing behind and everyone in between, you know? So when you say like, yeah, it'd be great to be a hub for wisdom and information and conversation, you said jamming, you know? Um, I think that's a powerful thing. In many ways, I think I've been that, not specifically around sex, except for kids that I've known who are like moving into adulthood. 
mm -hmm. um, and are more autonomously able to speak freely without their parents' consent being involved. But of course, it's a dicey area because you'll find dealing with other parents, other parents have different boundaries just about who should be talking to their kids about what. And it's unfortunate because many parents don't realize the value of mentoring that happens from people who are not parents and that kids feel sometimes more comfortable or just want another opinion. I know that growing up, I had sort of sought out adults that I could talk to that weren't just my parents that I gained a lot from, but it's tricky. You also don't want to be suddenly the guy who's talking to kids about sex without their parents' permission, because then suddenly you're the pariah instead of uh, the mm -hmm. elder in the in the neighborhood. And, and that's a mm -hmm. challenge, because the truth is there are no easy answers. And there's no easy answers as to even how we as adults learn to relate to these devices, which you uh, so eloquently said before, we're not wired to relate to. Suddenly we have all this technology, it's only getting more sophisticated and and as it gets more helpful and um, uh, kind of expansive in the possibilities of what things we can do with technology, so do also the sort of externalities of how it's affecting us adversely become exacerbated. And like the challenge of wielding all that is becoming harder and mm. harder. So I really appreciate that you have these, I think, visionary thoughts about healthy ways of relating to that, because I think this kind of thinking and conversation and the work that you're doing is really contributing to our trying to come into balance with technology, with uh, evolving understandings of sexuality. So I think I want to respond a little bit to this conversation about porn and, and raising children and just say if you are a parent out there and you are raising children you may have actually already caught your child with pornography you may have feel that you've failed or that you have done something wrong or that you uh, had a misstep in your own journey and now you're uh, feeling a lot of energy a lot of parents come to me with that that fear and or that reality which is oh i'm feeling shame that i didn't protect my own child and so one of the things that i think is really critical around this topic is understanding that when if we've had our own developmental traumas from when we were young let's say seven we had something happen to us i noticed that often when that adult grows up and has a child that they often uh that repeats itself I don't know why, but it happens at the same age with that child. So what I would also say to this is that if you are out there and you're a man and you're consuming pornography regularly, you're more likely to be susceptible to turning a blind eye into your child watching pornography. And if you've been a, and if you're uh, out there and you've had sexual trauma, you're more likely to turn away from uh, the situation where you, your child might be entering something that's dangerous where they could get developmental trauma as well. So being aware of our own shit allows for us to ensure that we protect our children and keep them safe. And so do your own work is also a really critical component to making sure that your children are safe too. That's a great way to end. So Tyson, thank you so much for this really stimulating, broad conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground. What's the best way for people to contact you who might be interested in working with you, whether it's men or women. Uh, I think you work with a variety of people. Is there a website? Or is there a Instagram? What's your What's your thing? How can we um, connect people to your work? My website's still in progress, so I haven't quite launched it. But on Facebook, Tyson Adams. Um, and then on Instagram, same, Tyson Adams with two underscores. You can find me there, follow along, DM me, audio message me, anything. And I'm very approachable and happy to 
jump on a call and um, whatever you're going through uh, here for you. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Tyson. Until we speak again. Thank you, Dana, for having me. Thank you for listening. Please follow the podcast. Review it favorably if you feel so inclined. Email me at omegamalesays at gmail.com. And who knows, I might even start tweeting someday at at omegamalesays. Take care until next time.